everybody. It's great to be back with you guys. Thank you so much for your welcome. For those of you who I don't know, I thought I'd just show you a photograph of my wife and kids. Here they are. And uh, I thought, just to help us get to know each other a bit better, I thought maybe I'd just begin this morning by telling you a funny, true story. Uh, this is a story about a friend of my wife, Julia, and mine. Her name is Angela. Angela lives in a rural part of Surrey in the south of England, where in this village there is only one bus a day. And on a cold, snowy day, Angela is waiting for the bus. But it doesn't come. It's late. There's a couple of other ladies there at the bus stop too. They're all trying to keep warm. Still the bus doesn't come, and Angela is about to give up and go home when at that moment a car pulls up at the bus stop. There's a, a, a lady who's driving this car. She winds down her window and she calls out, Do you want a lift? And Angela thinks, Well, yeah, <laughs> I really do want a lift. And so Angela gets into the back of the car. These other two ladies she doesn't know, they get into the back of the car as well. So now, Picture the scene. This woman's driving her car along the road. She's got these three ladies on the back seat. Angela in the middle. She's got a lady Angela doesn't know on her right. A lady Angela doesn't know on her left. But Angela says, the thing is, they're driving along. And there was no conversation. Nobody said anything. They're driving along in total silence for five minutes. A further five minutes. They've now been driving along for ten minutes still. No one has said anything. And then, the lady on Angela's right-hand side, she starts speaking to the driver. It's obvious these two ladies already know each other. But then the lady on the left of Angela, she joins in. It's obvious that she also knows the driver and the lady on Angela's right. These three know each other. And that's when the horrible, dawning realization comes upon Angela that what's really happened here is that this lady's been driving her car along the road and as she passes the bus stop, she's looked out the window and seen two of her friends. <laughs> and as she stops, she calls, she winds down the window, she calls out to her two friends, do you want a lift? And as her two friends get into her car, this random <laughs> other person gets into the car as well. But you see, folks, because they lived in the south of England, Nobody said anything. <laughs> it's just like, oh, we, we don't know who that lady is. Oh, we haven't been introduced. Oh, it's really awkward. So they just drove along in silence. And you and I know that's not normal. <laughs> you and I know that in every other part of Britain, for example, in here, if it happened in Birmingham, if you were in the car, you would have said, oh, we all know each other. We're all friends. But hey, do you want to lift as well? Where can we take you? No, but because they lived in the south of England, they just drove along in total silence. Folks, it would have been normal for one of them to have said something. In the same way when God encourages us to speak, when we're called to share our faith story, to go into all the world and make disciples, God knows exactly who you are. He knows what you're like. He even knows how you feel about this subject. And he empowers you. He backs you to speak the gospel in your world. So we can speak good news and we can be secure in the knowledge that God loves us. Now, he's proved that 
when he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for you. He's on our side. So yeah, it's true. God does call us in the Bible. We are called by Jesus to speak good news, to share the gospel, to not keep it to ourselves. As we do this, we're going to see this morning that there are massive advantages for me and there are huge benefits for you of living a life that is directed towards unconvinced people. Now let me just comment on this unusual choice of subject. Folks, we don't tell others the good news for our benefit. We obey Christ's commands because Christ is the king. But just for this morning, I just want to focus with you guys on those fringe incidental benefits for us. So the more that we focus on unconvinced, unreached people, let's look at five benefits. Benefit number one, there'll be more joy in our lives. Now, I was talking to this lady in our church called Heather, and Heather's friends with two sisters, one called Sarah and the younger one's called Anna. Heather invites Sarah, the older of the two sisters, to our church Alpha Course. The following day, Sarah, whose job is she's a trainee lawyer, um, her job for that particular morning was to take some legal documents that she's kept in her flat overnight. She's been told to take them to, uh, to court in central London. And on the one hand, you and I could say, well, that's a pretty straightforward task. I mean, it's literally moving some bits of paper from A to B. On the other hand, Sarah's bosses explain that this trial can't start until these documents arrive at the courthouse. So there's a certain amount of pressure. So Sarah thinks, hey, don't panic. I know what I'll do. I will set two alarms. In fact, I'll set my two alarms earlier than I normally would. Sarah even arranges for her friend to phone her in case her two alarms fail. So good news. She wakes up on time. She gets to the end of her road where she's hoping to catch the bus. She gets to the bus stop and she sees that the bus lane has been coned off overnight by the council and there's a sign up saying that the council are replacing the Victorian sewers and so there won't be any buses running on her road that morning. She thinks, don't panic. I will simply walk to the underground tube station. So she walks to the underground tube station. When she arrives at the tube station, the gates are shut. There's a padlock on the gates. There's a sign up, a whiteboard, London Underground regrets to inform you that the Northern Line is part suspended today. She thinks, don't panic. I will simply walk to the Overland train station. So she walks quite a long walk to the Overland train station. As she turns the corner, her heart sinks. People are queuing to get in to the Overland train station. So she joins the end of the queue, and she has to queue into the station through the ticket barriers. She has to queue all the way down the steps. She's queuing, queuing, queuing. Even when she's on the platform, she's still queuing to get to the front of the platform. Eventually, she gets to the front of the platform. She's definitely going to catch the next train. She looks up at the board to see when it's going to be arriving. She looks at the time, and she thinks, I don't think that this train's going to get here quick enough for me to get these documents to the courthouse before the trial's scheduled to start. And she starts to get really quite worried. And then she thinks, what would my Christian friend Heather do 
if Heather were in this situation. She thinks Heather would pray to God. And so Sarah and Anna, they aren't Christians. Sarah's never prayed a prayer to God before as an adult. So um, she doesn't pray out loud on the platform, but she closes her eyes and just kind of in her, it, silently she, she prays, Hello, God. Uh, it's me, <laughs> Sarah. I guess if you're God, you probably knew that. Um, yeah, hi, so hi. Um, yeah, so I was really uh, wondering, I'd be ever so grateful if somehow uh, you could help me uh, to get these uh, documents somehow uh, to the courthouse before the trial starts. I'm not quite sure how uh, you would do that, but if you could possibly get these documents to the courthouse before the trial starts, I would be really, 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 really grateful. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, yours sincerely, Amen, Sarah. She prays. She opens her eyes and she looks at the man who's standing next to her on the platform. And the man who's standing next to her on the platform is the barrister. The barrister who she's supposed to give the documents to at the courthouse. She's so shocked that she doesn't actually say anything. She just... hands them over. Now, of course, he looks at these bits of paper and immediately recognizes the case... And he says, oh, what a marvelous service. <laughs> I'm really very impressed. That's really rather good. Do pass on my regards to the partners. It's really I can now prepare on the train. It's really rather good. Thank you very much. And so then the train arrives. The barrister gets onto the train. And Sarah's left thinking, now come on. <laughs> I mean, what are the chances? I mean, really, what are, what are the chances that the first time I ever pray a prayer to God as an adult, that at that moment, the one person on the planet who could have solved my problem would just, by chance, happen to be standing right next to me I'm out of the thousands of people commuting into London? Well, you won't be entirely surprised to hear that Sarah and her sister Anna turned up at week one of our Alpha course, and that's where I met them. And uh, anyway, they came back every single week. And then on the weekend away, both Sarah and Anna, they both made a decision to follow Jesus Christ. And after that, both Sarah and Anna, they both got baptized at our church. And then subsequent to that, both Sarah and Anna, they both married young men in our church. They didn't marry the same young man. <laughs> that, that, that would clearly be a bizarre end to the story. What? What did you... Yeah, no, they're different young men. Okay. So anyway, I subsequently asked Heather. Do you remember Heather? Heather was the young lady. She was friends with this, these two sisters in the first place. So I asked her, hey, it's amazing what happened to Sarah and Anna. How was that from your point of view? And here's what Heather said. She said, the more that I prayed for Sarah to know Christ, I found myself thinking about how amazing it would be for Sarah to have eternal life. Praying regularly for Sarah has brought the wonder of my own salvation front and center in a new way. Heather said, focusing on lost people has reminded me that all of my problems are in the context of me being guaranteed certain of a place in heaven. Heather said, I found it hard to stay offended. 
I found it hard to stay upset about things when I'm continually having my mind flooded with the fact that I'm going to be spending most of my time in heaven. She said, thinking evangelistically has built in my mind a mountain of gratitude for my own salvation. She said, it's hard for the seeds of bitterness and disappointment to take root in a thankful heart. Colossians 1 verse 27 says that Christ in you is the hope of glory. And this is an exciting, empowering verse because it shows how much God is with you. How you and Christ, you're now part of the same team. Can you see how important you are? Can you see how valuable you are? You are the kingdom of God. And so when your alarm goes off tomorrow morning, when you hit the shower, Christ in you is up. And the kingdom of darkness is not happy. You see, the devil will be delighted if there were no Christians in education, no Christians in healthcare, no Christians in business, no Christians in local government, no Christians in sport. The, the devil would be delighted if all Christians lived in cozy Christian ghettos. Why? Because the devil knows that in John chapter 17, Jesus did not pray, Oh, Father, please take the nice Christians out of the nasty world. No, the devil knows in John 17, Jesus prayed, Father, keep the Christians in the world. So wherever you go, God goes. You are the kingdom of God. Wherever you are working now, God is working. When you enter your workplace tomorrow morning at 9 a.m., Christ in you arrives. Jesus is going to work tomorrow through you. Benefit number two. We will live with a greater sense of our value, dignity, and purpose. We are therefore now Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. One of our children came home from school one time with this invitation. It was to us a multicultural fundraising evening at the school hall. So I go to this event, and at this event, I get chatting to this man, and he is wearing a Mexican hat, a Hawaiian shirt, and a grass skirt. Because it was a multicultural, yeah, mul yeah, okay, anyway. So I say to him, oh, look, at him. He's, um, he's in this amazing getup. I say to him, wow, I say, where are you from? And he said, Iraq. Like he really was from Iraq. So anyway, we had a brief conversation about recent events in Iraq. There then follows a whole hour of multicultural dancing. Sorry, this, this is my multicultural dancing that I'm doing here. And so we're literally dancing around the school hall for a whole hour doing this. And then I bump into him again. This time, I ask him, would you say that everyone in Iraq is a Muslim? And he doesn't say anything in response. But he beckons me in a kind of a secretive, kind of furtive kind of a way towards the bar. So he starts walking off towards the bar like this. So I follow him towards the bar. And he arrives at the bar. He leans on the bar. He looks both ways. He checks that the coast is clear. And then he says, I have completely rejected Islam. I lean on the bar. I look both ways. <laughs> I check that the coast is clear. I say, so have I. 
He said, no way. I said, yeah, for real. He said, well, that's an amazing coincidence. I said, yes, it is. He said, well, we've got to talk about this. I said, yes, we have. He said, well, why don't you come over and, and my wife, Mira, and I, we will cook you a full Kurdistani dinner. He said, why don't you come over on Saturday with your family? Come over on Saturday at 3 p.m. and we will have dinner. Okay, so that's the invitation. So just to give you some background in terms of what happened on that Saturday. Folks, on Saturdays, I am placed in sole charge of our four children. And the way that I cope with this challenge, this responsibility, is I take them swimming. Yeah? Any other dads do that? Family splash. Yeah? So, take them swimming, and there are two key outcomes that I need to achieve by every single lunchtime on Saturdays. Number one, I need to present these children back to my wife and make, to make, make sure that none of them have drowned. Yeah? Secondly, I need to make sure that all of them are fully clothed. Yeah? That's a bit of a challenge because the little ones uh, run around the changing room and I have to trap them and clothe them against their will. That, that's the way it works. Anyway, so on this particular Saturday, mission accomplished. They're all still alive. They've got clothes on. And so everything's going okay. But it takes so long in the changing room, yeah, that we're running late. And I'm thinking, well, I've got to go down to Tesco's Express. I've got to buy some lunch. I've got to drive back. I've got to make the lunch. Then we've got to go to we're going to. So I say to my wife and kids, hey, let's all go to McDonald's. And all the kids go, yay, Daddy McDonald's. Yay, great call. Let's go. So they, we all go to McDonald's. Now, at McDonald's, folks, I have, this is relevant to the story, a Big Mac, large fries, and a large strawberry milkshake. Okay. We arrive at 3 p.m. on time at Salah and Mira's flat. Mira, who's a doctor, she opens the door and she says, Welcome. Welcome to our home. Let us all go through and have dinner. And I'm thinking, what now? I thought the invitation was, come over at 3 p.m., and then later on, at some unspecified time in the evening, we will have dinner. But no, the actual invitation was, come over at 3 p.m. and we will have dinner. Dinner being, from their point of view, a 3 p.m. meal. I am already full of Ronald McDonald. And so, they open the door to the living room. There's this quite large table, and it's got trays of food on, these ta on the table. And she's bringing in all these other trays. These are regional dishes from different parts of Kurdistan. And I'm looking at all, the, all of this. And, and I'm looking at all of these. All, and there's this one uh, chair around the table. And they explain to me that as the guest of honor, <laughs> that I am to sit in the chair and that they can't start eating until I have started eating. <laughs> so... I sit down in my chair. And as I'm sitting there, I feel like a king. You know, there are various women standing around. There I am, <laughs> in my chair. But then I think of my Big Mac, my large fries, my large strawberry milkshake. But then I think of that verse in the Bible where Jesus says, eat whatever is set before you. And I remember how, when I was a young Christian, I promised that I would obey every command in the Gospels. I can tell you, at the end of this meal, I have never felt so bloated in all my life. And I'm sort of sitting there. I can feel myself physically expanding in Salah's flat. And I'm sort of just rolling around. I, I'm, I'm sort of passing in and out of consciousness. 
I'm in this kind of inebriated state. And it's a real shame because actually, Salah's explaining to me, he's describing his profound intellectual rejection of Islam. Salah is complaining to me that he has a spiritual void in his life. Can I help? And in the conversation that followed, I just felt honored to be in the room for that conversation that we had. We are therefore now Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. You know, at the end of this meal, I, we stand up to leave to say goodbye. I mean, it's actually quite hard for me to stand up to leave. So I'm sort of leaning in the corridor against the wall. And I'll never forget what Salah said. He said, we want to be with you. We want you to be our friends. Folks, all I did was I agreed to go to the school multicultural fundraising evening, but God brought someone from Iraq who he knew was spiritually open and spiritually thirsty. At the gym, and incidentally, I needed to go to the gym after this episode. Um, at the gym, I'm talking to my non-Christian friend, Chris. Chris says, what have you been up to this week? I said, I've been preparing a message to help Christians reach unconvinced seekers with the good news about Jesus. He said, Adrian, can I give you some advice? He said, tell them not to say, the good book says this and the good book says that, because people like me, Adrian, are cynical about religion. I said, Chris, most people that I meet, Chris, are cynical about religion. But most people I meet, Chris, feel positive about relationships. Most people I meet, Chris, are cynical about religion. But most people I meet, Chris, are, they have a, a, a positive opinion about Jesus as a person. Most people I meet, Chris, have a high view of Jesus as a person. I said, Chris, the great thing is that what's on offer is not religion. What's on offer, Chris, is a relationship with Jesus that goes on forever. He said, oh, he said, I can see how that could be appealing. I said, Chris, do you believe in God? He said, well, he said, that depends where I am. I said, what? He said, well, when I'm on my bicycle and I'm cycling out into the countryside and then I can see the hills and the trees and the grass all around me, he says, I can't bring myself to believe that it's all just a total accident. I then asked Chris my favorite question. I said, Chris, do you believe that you're alive for a reason? He said, yes, but I've absolutely no idea what it is. And I felt honored. I felt privileged to be in the room for the conversation that followed. We are therefore now Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. Folks, you have been appointed as an ambassador for Christ, and God is on your side. And all the resources of heaven have all been placed at your disposal. We have been promised that when we speak on his behalf, God is going to back us up. We will be amazed to see how much the Holy Spirit is going to help us. Third benefit this morning, we'll see ourselves making a difference. 
Now you love this. You love it when the God of the Bible, the God who's really there, comes into somebody else's life through you. You love that. And it's as we go that Jesus says, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus said, look, I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus said, look, it's not the healthy that need a doctor. It's the sick. The apostle Paul said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus himself said, I have come to seek and to save the lost. We need to remember that Jesus made a conscious decision to hang out with unbelieving people. And so Jesus' reputation was, oh yeah, we've all heard of Jesus of Nazareth. Everybody's heard of Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah, here's what we know about him. He's a glutton. Yeah, Jesus, yeah he's a wine-bibber. Yeah, he's, he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, people said that about Jesus because Jesus made a habit of deliberately spending time with irreligious people. So as soon as you and I even start praying regularly for that unconvinced or skeptical person, we're pointing ourselves in the same direction that Jesus pointed himself. We, we are lining ourselves up with the same mission that Jesus lined himself up with. And when we start to prioritize unconvinced people, all the resources of heaven swing in behind us. And God is cheering us on. It's just as clear when Jesus is saying to his followers in John 20, 21, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Now, I find that most Christians find it relatively easy to believe that the Father sent the Son. But what is an absolutely delicious, sumptuous, mm, wonderful thing is to think in the same way that the Father sent the Son, Jesus is now sending you into your family, into your friendship circle of work colleagues or the people you know who don't yet know Christ. Jesus says as much when we overhear him praying to the Father about you. This is John 17, 18. Jesus says, as you have sent me into the world, Father, I've sent them into the world. And that's the way that God has sent you. As much as the God, God the Father sent Jesus the Son, so Jesus is now sending you. Fourth benefit this morning is that you'll become a stronger person with a fuller understanding of Christ. Now Philemon verse 6 says that it's through sharing our faith, that we become increasingly aware of how great our inheritance in Christ really is. For example, let me tell you about a couple in our church called Richard and Jill. And Richard and Jill, they were active in sharing their faith with this other couple called Paul and Helen. This is an old photo of Paul and Helena Hanley. Now, when this photo was taken, neither Paul nor Helena would have called themselves Christians. Paul was a 35-year-old atheist. He had a successful career in the city of London. Uh, Paul was an insurance broker. Uh, his wife, Helena, is a nurse. And Paul and Helena had a, a lovely house in, in Caterham in Surrey. Uh, they're married with three lovely sons. And Paul is one of those people that you sometimes meet in life who's strongly opposed to Christianity. Now, today, Paul Hanley is the pastor of a church in Cornwall. This is actually the second church that Paul and Helena have led. And so this is Pastor Paul. He's casting vision, doing a promo video for his church on the internet. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear these kind of stories, I wonder, how does that happen? 
I mean, how do you go from being a 35-year-old atheist to being the pastor of two churches? I mean, how does that happen? Folks, here's how it happened. One day, Paul and Helena are going for a walk in the park, locally, in Catron. As they're walking along the pathway, Paul sees this couple from our church, Richard and Jill, who are sitting on the grass. And Paul recognizes them because the lady Jill from our church, she's a nurse at the same hospital where Paul's wife, Helena, is a nurse. And Jill's befriended Helena. And in fact, Helena started to ask Jill some questions about her Christian faith. And the two of them are kind of striking up a, a kind of a relationship. And Paul's aware of this. So do you know what Paul does? He decides to blank Richard and Jill. So he just marches on like this, and he pretends to have not seen them, but he's got so close to them, there's been too much eye contact. And so Paul has to do that thing when he says, Oh, hi! <laughs> Almost walked straight by you. <laughs> Didn't see you right in front of me. Hey, how are you doing? It's great to see you. How are you? Paul says. Now, the thing is, as he walks over to Richard and Jill, Richard and Jill are having a picnic. Paul and Helena are holding picnic boxes. And so the social rules of Surrey <laughs> dictate Paul and Helena must sit down and have their picnic with Richard and Jill. And Paul's thinking, oh, I can't believe it. I'm stuck with the Christians. How did this happen? But then he thinks, hang on a minute. I can have some fun. I can have some fun with them. Because if they bring up, you know, whatever they talk about, God or whatever it is, I can just... Uh, I, I can just point out that the factual errors. I can point out the logical inconsistencies. I can tie them up in their own words, Paul thinks to himself. And wouldn't you just know it? Five minutes into the conversation, Paul's wife Helena asks Jill a question about her Christian faith. And for the next hour and a half, they have this full-on conversation about God and Jesus and such subjects. And you know, at the end of the hour and a half conversation, Paul says, I was walking back to the car and I was thinking to myself, do you know, I knew that it would be easy to win the conversation with the Christians, but you know, he remembers thinking, it was even easier than I thought it would be. So he puts the picnic boxes in the boot of the car, he closes the boot of the car, he goes into the driver's seat, he says, I put my key in the ignition and then I heard myself say these words. Helena, darling, you know that credit card bill that I told you yesterday was this much? I'm ever so sorry I lied. It was much more. It was actually this much. Well, there then followed a full and frank exchange of views between the married couple. Paul drives home, thinking to himself, where did that come from? What was that all about? Anyway, he gets home. As he's pulling up onto the driveway, he just feels this compelling urge to go into his study. He goes into his study... He opens a pad of blank A4 line paper and just starts writing down everything he can think of that he's ever done wrong. He goes back into the study each day for three consecutive days. When I met Paul, I asked him, Paul, why did it take you three days? He said, I had 35 years of stuff to write down. He said, do you know, it was just like being sick. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I knew once I got it all out, I knew I'd feel better. Now, guys, you already know the end of the story. You already know, I told you that Paul and Helen have become Christians. They actually go on to become pastors of two different churches. And so the first time that I ever met Paul Hanley was 
on Paul and Helena's first ever Sunday at church. So I was on the welcome team. I'm standing on the door. I'm shaking people. I'm just welcoming people as they come to church that morning. This couple arrived with their three sons, I think. I don't think I recognize these people. I say, hi. And I introduce myself. They introduce themselves. I say, do you know anyone here? Oh, yeah, we know Richard and Jill. Oh, I know Richard and Jill. And then I say, well, is this your first time at church here this morning? And Paul says, yes, as a matter of fact, it is. We've become Christians earlier this week. I thought, what a great answer. Yeah, so anyway. Um, so as you can imagine, I ask him, how did that happen? He tells me the story that I just told you. And towards the end of the story, folks, I am absolutely desperate to know. I asked Paul, Paul, what was it that Richard and Jill said to you that afternoon in the park that made you want to confess about how you lied about the credit card bill, that made you want to spend three days in your study writing down everything you'd ever done wrong, what was it that they said to you in the park that prompted you to leave atheism and become a Christian? What did they say? And Paul said, oh, he said, it wasn't anything they said. I said, well, what was it then? He said, it was them. It was something about them. Now, Paul would now say it was Christ in them. So I'm having this conversation with a first-time visitor in the foyer of our church. Do you know what, folks? Seven years later, Paul Hanley was the pastor of our church. And like I said, they're now leading this other church in, in, uh, in Cornwall. Now, Paul said that the real Jesus, the Jesus who really is alive, was working through Richard and Jill to create within Paul a desire to be pure. Now, Paul had never felt this craving to be pure, to be clean before. But all of a sudden, he wanted to be washed. He wanted to be renewed. He'd never had that desire before. So Paul and Helena found out there's more to life than being successful. There's more to life than being happily married. There's more to life than being happily married with kids. There's more to life than having a successful career. Paul and Helen have found out that summer that there is a real God who really loves you. But just think about that story from Richard and Jill's point of view. Wow. You see, all Jill did was befriend a colleague at work called Helena and start to be active in sharing her faith with Helena, but hey, look what came out of that. Jill would now say, hey, Philemon, verse 6, through being active in sharing her faith, Jill says she's now got a fuller understanding of every good thing that she has in Christ. Fifth and final benefit this morning, folks, is that we will become more like Jesus. How so? Well, Jesus drew people to God by telling stories. Yeah? So as Jesus makes you increasingly more like him, don't be surprised if you get more and more and more pleasure out of storytelling. You see, people love to listen to Jesus' stories. The Bible says that the common people heard him gladly. Now, you might hear that and say, yeah, yeah, I get that. The, the value, the importance of story, I get that. The importance of storytelling. But somebody might hear that. You might be here and you might say, look, here's the thing. I don't really have a story, you might say. 
I mean, for example, you might say, I don't have a testimony of a before and after I became a Christian, you might say, because the truth is, you might say, I was only eight years old when I became a Christian. I was brought up in a wonderful, loving Christian home, so I don't really have like a dramatic before and after story. Because there are Christians, aren't there? I I don't know about you, but I find uh, dramatic before stories, I find often Christians in America will have a dramatic before story. Haven't you heard these stories? And they might go something like this. They start, they start off something like this. I'll start off, um, dude, I had a thousand dollar a day crack cocaine habit. And I was raised in the ghetto. And my life was a blur, a blur of gang violence. And I was being chased by the feds. But then one night in prison, she... Now you can't say that. <laughs> you can't say that because the truth is that when you became a Christian... You were eight years old, and you were attending a Church of England primary school. Now, folks, my wife, Julia, is the most effective personal evangelist I know. My wife, Julia, has led more of her friends to Christ than anyone else that I know. Yet, Julia grew up in a wonderful, loving Christian family. She, of all people, could so easily say, yeah, I don't really have a testimony. So what does she do? Does she make one up? Does she say, yeah. Does she say, yeah, I was abandoned by my parents at birth. And I was raised by a pack of wolves. And it was when I was running with the wolves, that's when I first learned to hunt and kill with my bare hands. And in fact, it was around that time that I first discovered voodoo. Does she say that? No. No, the truth is she doesn't say that because the truth is that Julia did not grow up in the Bronx. She never saw action in Vietnam. No, before she came to Christ, she attended Croydon High School for Girls. And about the most rebellious thing that my wife has ever done was once when she handed in her Latin homework late. (laughs) So what is her 45-second faith story? Well, this is what she says. As a child, I worried a lot, even though I had nothing to worry about. Like many people... I was a born warrior. My parents brought me up to believe the Bible. I became a Christian age 12. I was baptized age 13. When I was 17 years old, I got glandular fever and I missed a lot of school. I could have got really worried. But I felt God's presence and I learned not to get worried about things. I had this amazing sense of peace. I went to university. I could easily have turned my back on Jesus, but I found that I didn't want to. I was a born warrior, but God gave me peace. Maybe the band would like to come and join me. Folks, one day there will be so many people in heaven that the Bible says it will be impossible for anyone to ever count them. By that stage, there will be at least, we know for a fact, one person from every single language group, from every tribal group, from every ethnic group, around the throne of God in heaven. Therefore, between now and then, there will be millions of people who come to know Jesus Christ personally. You and I get to be part of seeing that happen. We get to play our part in the most wonderful thing that will ever happen. In the future history of our world, we get to play our part and we can have the time of our lives while we're doing it. 
We get to enjoy that journey. Right now, you and I, we're in the most wonderful adventure. God bless you. It's been great being with you.